is called moving day. Second Samuel 6.13 says this, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. In this scripture, we're talking about how David took the ark of the Lord. I'm going to explain what all of that means. And he was bringing it into Jerusalem in this great celebration that was happening around it. But before we continue, let's just take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity we have today to hear from your, your word, the Bible. I pray, Lord, would you allow it to speak to every one of us. You're so good at speaking to each one of us as you speak to all of us. Our hearts are open. We thank you, Lord, for what you have to say. And Lord, I pray for the empowerment and the leading of your Holy Spirit to share what is in your heart today. We thank you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the Old Testament, there was this thing called the Tabernacle of Moses, which Abigail's got a picture of that for you. And this is one of my favorite renditions of it. And it was basically a structure that was built where the, in the Old Testament they used it for worship. There were sacrifices there. There's a, there's a tent in the middle, and that's where they had uh, worship. And the priest would go in there. And inside that tent there was a room called the Holy of Holies. And there was a very special piece of furniture in there called the Ark of the Covenant. And Abigail will show us that one next. And it was a very ornate, golden and laden box. And inside of it, it had a handful of special items. It had a jar with manna in it. And manna was this food that when they were in the wilderness, God would provide every day. They miraculously had food for all of these people. Also, Aaron's rod, which was basically a stick that had been cut off from its tree. And, and it, it, there was a miracle in the Old Testament where his, his stick that was you know, off of its tree and dead budded like it had new life. And it was a miracle that was in there. And then there were uh, the Ten Commandments were in there. Stone Ten Commandments were in this box. And it was kept in the Holy of Holies, which again was inside of this tent in a special room behind this heavy curtain called a veil. Now, what's important about this is on earth at that, mo- at that time and in that season, the greatest place of God's manifest presence was right there. In between these two golden cherubim, it was called the mercy seat, and God's presence was at this place. Now, God is, is not limited. He's omnipresent, so you can meet with God anywhere. We talk about the manifest presence. It's kind of like the the presence that you can feel, the presence where you're closest to him, and it it symbolized that place here on earth. Um, And so that was kept in a special room, and in that time in the Old Testament, only the high priest, only once a year, was able to go in there, and he was only able to go in because he had the yearly atonement sacrifice, which is what paid for the sins of Israel, okay? And so it was a special place reserved for a special person only once a year, and again, it represented the closest place that you could be in God's manifest presence on earth. Now, I'm going to fast forward to you to get you to moving day. We fast forward, and after it's, uh, they enter into the land of Canaan, Israel, um, and we go through a time of the judges, Israel starts having kings. The first king was in our last series that we did called In the Meantime. We talked about King Saul. When King Saul was ruling over Israel, he lost the ark to their their enemies, the Philistines. And they had taken and captured the ark. 
And then when David became king, which is David, David's probably one of the more famous kings in the Old Testament. He's the same David that wrote like most of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. David is, is there and David says, you know what? I want to move the ark back where it belongs. They had recaptured it, but they hadn't put it back into the capital city where David was ruling from. And so David said, by golly, I don't think he really said by golly. He probably said some fancy like Hebrew words. But he said in Guchlanese, he said, by golly, we are going to move the ark, the, the place of God's manifest presence. We are going to move it back into Jerusalem. And so they had moving day. Now, to move it, I had to have a place to move it to. So he built this tent, uh, a place where the, the priest and him could uh, worship God and honor God with songs and with dance and all kinds of stuff. And he, was, he had a place that prepared of where he was going to take it. He said, okay, let's move this thing. And we're going to pick that up in First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 7. It says this. They moved the ark of God from Abinadad's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the ox had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died before God. Then David was very angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. The Lord blessed the household and everything in it. How about you? But like, there are times when I'll read a scripture um, and I'll, I'll scratch my head and go, what just happened? Has that ever happened to you? I think that happens a lot of times with people when they read the Bible, and I'm not talking about the whole Bible, they'll be come to parts and you're like reading along and it's almost like, what just happened? And in this story, you're thinking, you're, if you're following along, you're thinking, moving the ark of God to the capital city sounds good to me. You know, everything seems to be great. They're having this great big party, basically, worshiping and honoring God and singing, and they're just going to town. The oxen stumbles, guy reaches out, party over. The guy drops dead. You can read that kind of story and go, what is up? Sometimes um, people will make stuff up about God. Like they'll say, well, the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. And they just make stuff up to explain it. When God says about himself that he doesn't change, so it makes you go, okay, what's really going on here? The way that David responded, he didn't know what was going on at first. It says that he was afraid of God. He's bewildered. He's like wondering himself, like, what happened? I, I think he's probably thinking, doesn't it like please God that we're bringing the ark to Jerusalem? And the answer would be yes. Doesn't it please God that we're all worshiping and honoring God in this moment and celebrating? It says they were celebrating with all their might. And the answer would be right, yes. And this is one of those situations where they had the, the right idea but the wrong plan. Has that ever happened in your life? You ever like said something to someone, it was like what you needed to say, and it was the right thing to say, but you said it completely wrong? 
I'm not talking marriage right now. Relax. <laughs> Heavens in every minute. But it's the way you said it. No, anyhow, um, it was the face you gave me. Anyhow, no, really, we're not going to go into that right now. Um, but this is one of the circumstances where it was the right idea, but the wrong implementation. It was done the wrong way. Um, you see, in this time period, the symbolism of everything that was happening was really important to God. And the reason that the symbolism was important it was because all of the symbolism pointed to God and explained something about God. It wasn't that he was just being testy or that he was just looking for a reason to whack somebody. Like There was very, um, very clear instructions about how to do stuff. As a matter of fact, that first picture that I had shown you of the tabernacle of Moses, some things in, in the Bible, it's just like, go build it. Things like the tabernacle of Moses where we saw, it, God was really specific about like dimensions and everything. But the reason was is it all pointed to him, and he wanted there to be accuracy for people in understanding who he was. And so we're going to see that in, in these examples. Remember I talked to you about the ark and what was in it. You see, there's the jar of man, with the manna in it, right? Well, the manna represents God's provision. There's the rod that's in, in the, the Ark of the Covenant. The rod represents God's favor and God's leadership, right? And then you have the Ten Commandments that are in there, which represents God's righteousness and how good he is, that he's not going to all of a sudden become an evil God or become unrighteous. And so you begin to put those things together and get this. The place of God's greatest manifest presence on earth is a place of provision. It's the place of God's favor. It's the place of God's leadership. It's the place of his righteousness and goodness. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It all begins to make sense as you begin to say, it's not about the manna. It's about the provider of the manna. And that his presence is that place. Well, on moving day, David had a plan that suited him. He put a plan. He's like, you know, and I kind of look at it. It's like David had a modern plan. Abigail, we put that picture back up for a moment. You see the Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, if you want to learn nothing about the Ark, watch Indiana Jones. (laughs) But it's really cool. Um, It had these rings where you could put basically a stick through it. And what was intended was for four people to carry the ark. But these were modern times back in the Old Testament when David was doing this. Thanks, Abigail. Um, and so David said, you know what I'm going to do? God's, God's ark deserves a brand new cart. We are going to make the fanciest cart. It was probably like one of those self-driving, navigating arcs, you know, like an Uber. You know, like it probably had all the bills and whistles. You just told it where to go on your app. And, you know, and he's like, we're going to build an arc so we don't have to have four people carry it. Now we only need two people, one on each side, to just walk alongside of it. He's thinking, these are good ideas, right? But what David didn't do is he didn't look at the reason why it was built the way that it was to be carried the way that it was. And you see, there was a picture there that was really important to God. And that picture was God's presence is intended to be carried by people. When we give our lives to Jesus and we say, Jesus, will you be my Savior? His Holy Spirit comes in our lives. And God wants, he wants me to carry his presence, not Fido. 
right? Not an ox, not, you know, he wants me to carry it. And that was like a really important picture to the Lord. And so it would be kind of like today me going, you know what? We came in here today, we worshiped and we sang our songs to the Lord. We didn't just sing about the Lord. But you know what? Instead of us coming in next Sunday, I'm going to make an app that will worship for us. Next Sunday, don't even get out of bed. Just hit the app. It will play, and Google will spontaneously pick the next song for you and everything. And it's just going to do all the worship for it. You don't need to carry the worship yourself. Your app's going to carry it. That's kind of like what was going on with with David in that day is, I've got an idea. We'll do it this way. God was saying, you're missing the point. The point was that you're supposed to carry it, and it's supposed to be with you. Now, what's wild is while uh, there's three months while – that they left it at Obed-Edom's house. And two things happened during those three months. One thing that happened is Obed-Edom and his whole household was really blessed. Now, I don't know about you, but if they were bringing me an ark that a guy just put his hand on and dropped dead, I'd think twice about before, you know, like, put it in my house. I'd be like, you know, my neighbor, he's a really spiritual guy. Go put it at his house. But they put it in his house. It's just that he, his household, all, everything of his was blessed while it was there. You can imagine David's looking at this going, huh, maybe, you know, like maybe, maybe my plan was right and what I wanted to do was right, but what is wrong? The second thing that happened is David did his research. He went back and he said, okay, what is it that I'm missing? What is it, what is it about my plan that is missing? Because I know bringing the ark to Jerusalem has to please God. I know the idea of us worshiping and celebrating, and it's not like a quiet in the middle of the night kind of thing. We're celebrating and worshiping God, that that's right. What am I missing? David did his research. He figured it out. And in First Chronicles 15, this is what it says. And this is kind of David's second run at it, if you will. Moving day two. He says, Then David summoned Zadok and Abathar the priest and Uriel, Asael, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadad, and the Levites. You know, I've taken a lot of Bible courses. They don't give you Bible courses on how to pronounce these names. And if y'all think when I'm reading these that I'm just kind of making it up, you're right. I am not at home practicing how to say these words. So if you're like, I think he said that wrong, you're probably right. He said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourself, which means to set yourself apart, and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It's because you, the Levites, who were the priests, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites, they consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded, in accordance with the word of the Lord. And David had told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians and to make joyful sound and musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. I'm going to go to verse 27. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen. And there were all Levites who were carrying the ark, and as were the musician and Kenaniah, 
who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So all of Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts and with the sounding of rams, horns, trumpets, and cymbals, all playing lyres and harps. This is pretty pretty cool story. Can you imagine being one of the four guys who are selected to carry the ark? Like, not it, right? These four guys are carrying it. And if you read it in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where there's another telling of the same story, it says they, they would take six steps. They would stop, have a sacrifice, have a party. Now that's careful. Six steps before they'd go on to the next one, right? So they were really trying to get it right and do it right this time. And again, there's all this symbolism. Now the people of God are carrying the presence of God. There's, there's something... Very special about God's presence. You know, we we come in here and we sing our songs to God. And you know, God is not, um, even though we don't see him with our eyes, we, we can see him with our hearts, if you will. And we know that he's with us. And there are moments where you feel in your heart and in your emotions and even physically, like you can sense um, this manifest presence of God. And there is something about it that is about him that is so encouraging and his love and his faithfulness and his kindness. And David had this revelation. He was a songwriter and he he wrote all of these songs about God and he had experienced God's presence. And when this happened in David's life, when, when when Uzzah died, like he had been serving God and seen God do so many miracles and he knew the nature of God and the goodness of God. And yet he's going, but I don't understand what's happening. What's great is God's okay when you don't understand. You can ask him questions and then wait on him for answers and look for answers. And, and he's, he's good and he's patient that way. And he's stable and he's not fickle. And you can, you can just keep seeking him and searching him. And David knew that God's presence was a good thing. It's interesting that the symbolism this time, because now they're carrying it. And it says here in... First Chronicles chapter 15, that David has on fine linen or fine robes and that the priests are doing the same thing. And that symbolism was actually super important. And I want to share that with you. I'm going to read to you a scripture out of Isaiah 61.10 that gives us some insight on what did that linen or that robe represent? says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now, I want to I give you this picture. This time, it says explicitly, David is wearing this fine robe. What this robe represented is it, it represented righteousness or goodness. Now catch this. There's another scripture in Isaiah 64, verse 6, where it says basically that you and I, our righteousness, our goodness is like filthy rags. Like if we were to go around the room and every person, you're to just tell me how good you've been and all the amazing things, you're, all of us, our, our ability to be amazing and righteous is like filthy rags. You see, the robe that they had on wasn't a robe of how good they were. It was a robe of how good he is. 
it says in the scripture that it was a robe of his righteousness. It goes deeper than that because, you see, one of the things that we find in our journey with God is we begin to realize that your ability to, like, try hard and to be good, have you ever done that? I would go around the room, but I think everybody who's honest would go, I'm not that great at that. We always tend to fall short in our own effort to be this picture of goodness and righteousness and those kind of things. The thing is, God knows it. And so what he says is, listen, to approach me and to come to me and to enjoy my presence and to be in communion with me, instead of coming with your robe, how about you put on mine? This is the thing that is so hard for many of us to really capture, which is when we carry the presence of God, when we come into the presence of God, when we come before him, we actually don't come on the basis of how amazing we are or even by how amazing he's changed us to be or anything like that. We have always only been able to come to him based on his righteousness and his goodness. I want to take that just a little bit deeper. I'm going to give you this scripture out of Romans chapter 3. This is a New Testament verse, and it says this. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, now catch this, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, before I go on to the next verse, what this scripture is saying is that When you put your trust in Jesus, just like Sam was doing today and Nathan was doing, showing their decision to trust in Jesus and follow follow Jesus. When we put our hearts and our lives into his hands, we receive his goodness on our life. What a gift. I don't know about you, but I don't deserve it. So many times people think that Christianity is about you decide to follow Jesus and then you perform. That's not actually how it works. You decide to follow Jesus. He puts his goodness on your life and he transforms you. And you cooperate with what he's doing in you. Some of us who are very performance minded, we can even, I remember when I first gave my heart to Jesus, if you don't know my story, I was an atheist in high school, wanted nothing to do with God, wanted to run from it all, didn't believe he existed, and then I graduated to agnostic. I said, well, he exists, but I don't know if he's really the God of the Bible and all of that. But I secretly prayed, I said, God, if you are real and you're who this book says you are, I will give you my life. But if you're not real, you're not listening. Well, he took me at my word. And I, there's another journey that I can talk to you about that later. But when I first accepted Jesus and decided, you know what, Lord, I am, I believe you are who this book says you are, and I'm going to put my life in your hands. Man, I wanted to, I just wanted to do so good, and I worked so hard, and I just put my heart behind it, and I tried to be good and do good and all those kinds of things. But what I realized is I was trying to strive for something that he just wanted to place on my life. And that what he wanted to do was transform me and work with me, not get me to work it all out on my own. And that eludes a lot of good believing people trying so hard. And what this scripture says is that when you trust Jesus, when you put your life in his hands, he does all the heavy lifting. Continue to read out. Start again in verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith 
or trusting in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So many times people will use that scripture to hurt people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This scripture is about the grace that we need and the forgiveness that we need. It says, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. This word justify, it basically means to make righteous. And that he makes us righteous as a free gift. He puts his righteousness on us. One of the best pictures I ever saw of this is, you know, when you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to put my life into your hands. What he does is he puts that robe, he puts his righteousness over your life and he covers you. And the rest of your life, he begins to put it inside of you. And that's what walking with Christ is really like. And it's that picture of his goodness on our life is what brings that together for us. What's really neat, you know, I was talking about these symbols and how important they are to God. And um, the wild thing is that picture that I showed you before, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all of those things. Now, the next, like, these questions I'm going to ask, it's going to be like the Sunday school answer. I'll give you the answer already. Every time I, I say a question, the answer is Jesus, Okay. All right, so we know that Jesus went to the cross and he paid for our sins. Well, when he did that, remember how I said in that tabernacle of Moses there was a high priest who would go in? Guess who the high priest is? Jesus. It says that he would go in with a sacrifice once a year. Guess who's our sacrifice? Jesus. But he only needed to do it once, once and for all. And when he made that sacrifice, do you know that when Jesus died on the cross in the New Testament, it says that the veil between the the holy place and the most holy place, that it was ripped from top to bottom when he died on the cross. It was like God's hands himself, like ripped it open. Guess who's the veil? Jesus. He's making us a way into the closest place of God's presence that is available. Isn't that amazing? And so... There's this other verse that sometimes gets really misused and misunderstood, and it's in John 14, 6. It says, Jesus answered, and this is what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you know my Father as well. And from now on, you know him because you've seen me. A lot of times people misuse that verse and misunderstand it. And the way that they'll, they'll use it is, is the, or misunderstand it is they'll think, well, that's really hard of God to make one way to him through Jesus. People go, why can't there be like 8,000 ways back to Jesus? And people think that's cruel and that's mean and that's wrong. But what Jesus is saying is, or what God's saying is, listen, I gave my son who's in my exact representation. If you've seen him, you've seen me. If you receive him, you receive me. If you respond to him, you're responding to me. He's not trying to make it complicated or exclusive. He's trying to make it simple and inviting, saying, if you see my son and if you see what he's done for you and you receive what he's done for you, that's the way. 
Sometimes people use stuff as like a sharp stick when really it's the simplicity and the beauty of God just saying, listen, I desire you. I'm pursuing you. I want you to know me. I want you to come to me. I've done all the heavy lifting. I am the, you know, Jesus is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the curtain. He is the robe of righteousness that is on our lives. He's done all that heavy lifting because we can't do it ourselves. That beauty and that simplicity. Again, sometimes I read a story in the Old Testament, I'll scratch my head and go, what just happened? And you think, God, you just fly off the handle? Do you have issues? He's like, no, see, see, I don't want Uber carrying me. I want you carrying me. I want, I want to be in your life, not your phone. I want to be, you know, I want, I want you. These beautiful pictures that he wanted to maintain so that the picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done would be so clear to us. Such an amazing, simple thing. I'm going to invite um, Grace to come up and we're going to close in prayer here in just a moment. And I just want to say to you this morning, um, the simplicity of that message and the beauty, and we, we went to a lot of deep places today. I just want to encourage you, if you are in a place where you're like, searching or have questions and things like that, I just want you to know God is not intimidated by any question you have, anything, because I remember the seasons of my life when I was trying to figure all that stuff out. I thought I was the smartest 17-year-old on the face of the earth trying to figure out God and the universe. But I really just simply said, God, if you're real, make yourself known to me and I will follow you. And as I looked and looked and looked, I didn't like discover a fact I recognized that he was who he said he was. And you just began to follow him. And um, if you have questions, keep on asking questions. You might be in a place today where you go, you know what? I believe in God. I do believe in Jesus. But I haven't put my life into his hands. And like given him my allegiance. Like I'm still the one driving. And I just want to encourage you today. It's the greatest decision you ever make in your life to take the rule of your own life and to put it in Jesus' hands. The thing is, he's not going to rip the wheel out of your hands because it's a relationship with him and he wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're in that place and you, you know it's time to let go of the wheel and to put it in his hands, it's not complicated. It's a decision in your heart where you say, God, forgive me of all my sins. I want to follow you. I want to know you. And I just ask you to help me follow and know who you are. And that just becomes the starting point of literally the rest of your life.